Welcome back to part B of this Helpside two-parter with Nathan Eglinton. We're glad to have you with us. Now, if you missed part A, I thoroughly recommend going back and having a listen. It's a cracker, and this will make a lot more sense. For the rest of you, let's go. It sounds like it was uh, a lot of fun traveling with that team. Like, as you said, they were... Yeah. And, and for those who don't know, like, they effectively become your, your family away from home and your best mates. Is there one story or one tour that really typifies your experience as a kookaburra? Um, oh, they were all good in their in their ways. Um, like because I come in young. Like I remember my first few leading up to the Olympics in two thousand four, and that is I was still trying to make and like establish myself. And we had we had this group of older players, and then. Um, as I went further, I'd be sort of become not, not one of the oldest, but I was starting to become like a middle-aged player. Mm. Um, I don't think anyone really like, it's very difficult to beat the, beat the Olympics. 2006 mm. world cup in Germany was incredible. Although we lost that final after being in a position to win, that was a pretty incredible experience because in Much and Gladbach where they had the, the event, they had the, the main grandstands that are already in there, but then they built the ones up in any spare space around it. And it was, just this coliseum of Germans in the finals, like just with their blow up Hyundai noisemakers <laughs> and whatnot. And it was a really loud, um, really loud environment. To, got to the point where once they started to get back into that final, I think we're three one up at half time or three one up just after half time. We scored to go ahead and then they sort of started to come back. And as they started to come back, this wave of energy was starting to come out of these grandstands. And there was just like, 15,000, 20, I don't know how many people there. It was packed, mm. just screaming. And you couldn't hear yourself think. You, was, you couldn't even scream to your teammate like it was that noisy. And that was a pretty incredible experience. Yes, didn't win that final, which we we let one go there um, in terms of in being a World Cup um, winner in 2006. But that that tournament was also was a pretty incredible experience um, to go through. Um, yeah. Mm. I'm trying to think of the, I'm trying to think of the other ones, but we'll think if you um, if you remember, we'll, we'll we'll come back to that. Feel free to just jump yeah. in at any time. Yeah. I want to talk about because you did you retired very young. I mean, you yeah, you played 140 games, you scored 50 goals, and you retired when you were 27. Um, 27. Yeah. Before that, though, you set um, a hockey record, an international hockey record for the yeah the, longest yellow card. <laughs> yeah, you can tell us about that. And so, and so we it was champions trophy final, two thousand seven, and it was in it was in KL playing Germany and and a ball a ball come up in the air and I sort of played it here to try and play it down in front of me, and the German player sort of come through and he got me on the hand as he's trying to play the ball and I turned around like that like just to front up to him, mm. and and he grabbed his face as if I'd hit him and hit the gr- and hit the ground. Really? And, and then they come running in from everywhere. And I was like, what's going on? I didn't, didn't touch him. Mm. Anyway, the umpire sent me off, gave mm. me a yellow card. And I had like, I think I was off for the last 15 minutes of the half or something. And, and I got off at half time and I was like, I didn't touch this guy. And I think um, they reviewed it. And I think the TD even went to the umpire and said, you've made a mistake. Like we've reviewed it. He hasn't touched this guy. And the umpire said, no, I know what I saw. And he left me off for another 12. Unbelievable. So we played, we played in the heat of KL for 27 minutes with 
10 players. I think we, I think we ended up losing by a goal. Um, but, and if I knew it at the time that that was going to be the last time I played, I probably would have chosen to try and play on. But when I fast forward, like I didn't get that opportunity because I got injured in 2008 and that Mm. was the last international game before I got injured. That was your last game. Yeah. So the last time I played for Australia, I was, I was off for 27 minutes through an umpiring error. And yeah, oh, yeah. Maybe, maybe I should maybe I shouldn't have shaped up. That's probably mm. on me. But mm. the fact that I know I didn't hit him, and even to this day, I think he, I think even after the game, he shook his took my hand and was pretty pretty happy about the fact that he got me sent off. Mm. Um, he didn't get sent off either. No. Yeah. <clears throat> no, j- just me. So, but I had um, yeah. If I had known that was the last time I was going to play, I was I probably would have said no. I could probably probably shouldn't uh, end like that but mm. i made the choice i made the choice um <clears throat> and i can i can run you into those circumstances about how i how i came to that decision now if you want yeah um, tell me tell me about your timing and so um 2000 end of 2007 and it was it was interesting like post 2004 into the five and six and and that i i had a few like really strange injuries like like not your typical hammies or whatever. Like I was, I, um, I'd had like a, I did my AC shoulder once. It was an AHL final that knocked me out for a bit. I did my medial in my knee just through an impact injury. And so, but I, I, I had some ankle problems. I, I just sort of semi displaced my ankle and rolled it and did some real damage. Had it, had some surgery on it, um, in 2005. And, I I started playing a little bit heavier, um, and in hockey terms back then, like like other than maybe the goalkeepers who were a bit physically bigger and, and Bevan George, I think I was probably the next heaviest. I played at about eighty five kilos, mm. um, and so for a hockey player, like a lot of them are probably mid seventies type <clears> weights. <throat> yes, I was a bit bigger, and I played a lot. I played quite explosive, but I, I had a had a big strong core, and I sort of just used to use that as into my to affect that I used to just try and steamroll people at times, mm. um, um, basically <laughs> um, within the rules. Um, but I played a bit heavier and, and I had some discussions with Barry Dancer and, and that, that maybe I was playing too heavy, that I was getting these lower limb injuries through just carting a little bit too much weight around. Mm. Um, and also, I also did struggle with my weight a bit playing days. Um, like my skin folds weren't bad, but they weren't, they weren't, they weren't Rob Hammond like they weren't like, <laughs> I wasn't one of the chiseled um, brigade. Um, and, and Mick McCann and, and Brent Livermore and the like used to, used to like to rib it to me a bit that I used to have to do a bit of extra work to, to try and get out of the fat club, you know, and, and that's fine. I just had a four stick drag that those bozos couldn't tackle. So <laughs> eventually, um, but I may, I had a discussion with Barry and, and the physics staff and, and I got really fit. You know, I dropped, I dropped some weight, over the 2007 summer and went into the AHL in 2008 as fit as I'd ever been, like, like weight wise, really lean, mm. um, really, really, um, really fit. And um, in the end, it might've been a bit detrimental to how I hurt myself because mm. I, I was still trying to play the way I played it, maybe without the same physical bulk. Like I was trying to play explosive style um, and the Olympic program had started in, it started in Perth, March leading into the Beijing Olympics. 
squad was together. I had a little hip flexor injury, um, just a little strain. It wasn't anything significant. I come back and we were training on the second pitch in Perth. We we're just doing a training exercise, like sort of like a gameplay style thing. And I led away from a player, had a goal shot. And as I was having the goal shot, pretty much the entire left side of my core just collapsed. Like, mm. And the way I explain it to people is that if you've ever, if anyone that's listening has ever done a soft tissue injury, like a hammy or a calf or something, you feel it just go, you feel it ping like that. You go, oh, I've done my hammy or I've done my muscle. I reckon for the, almost a full second, when you think about it in this context, it's a lot of time. I reckon as I struck the ball and collapsed, I think almost for a full second, you could feel stuff rip. Wow. And I remember hitting the deck. Aaron Hopkins was the first player over to me and he goes, you're right. And I said, I've done something really bad here. And at the time, the pain hadn't really set in. I was lying there and I reckon within two to three minutes, my entire core had shut down to try and protect it. Because at the, at the time, I didn't know the significance of the injury, mm. but I couldn't sit up. I couldn't do anything. I was just lying there. It was really starting to hurt. So I went up and waited in the, um, waited in the physio um, doctor's rooms at the hockey stadium there with some ice on it, just laying there. Training was over. I remember Barry coming in asking, like, what, how does it feel? And I said, oh, it's, it's hurting. And so they'd organised for me to go and then get some some scans done the very next morning, like pretty much rush me in, get some pictures taken to find out what's happened. So I remember going to that appointment really uneasy because mm. like I couldn't really walk. I was on, I had some crutches and sort of just hobbled along. Um, I've got a lift there actually had the pictures. I remember going in and the guy, the guy didn't give me anything to start with. He sort of said, g'day, how are you going? Just reading the report. And he started taking some photos and I was sort of just laying there and he was just sort of looking, taking some more photos, looking, and then we didn't really have any conversation for about 10 or 15 minutes. It was really strange. And then at the end, he goes, okay, all done. I go, right. And he goes, right, I'm going to be honest with you. And I was like, okay, it's coming. He said, if I didn't read that you're a hockey player and I didn't read the report, and I just started taking photos. I'd swear you'd been in a car accident. Wow. And I said, what do, you, what do you mean? He goes, well, it just looks like something has hit your pelvis and everything's just torn off. I said, what do you mean torn off? He goes, well, the longest and brevis muscles that are attached to your, your ductor muscles that are attached to your um, bone, he goes, they're just clean off. And I went, okay. And he goes, and then the ligaments that are across your pelvis, there's some tears there. There's some tears on the top of your stomach, your tendon that comes, I think, down to your, to your top of your pelvic bone. He goes, it's, it looks like a really traumatic injury. Yeah. And I went, okay. And so that you hear that. And straight away in your head, you think, I'm gone. You know, my 2008 is over. Mm. And so Barry being Barry, he to, and he was amazing. He's very optimistic. We'll, we'll get some pictures taken. I mean, we'll get some, some opinions. We'll get to the surgeon, whatever. We even went, went and consulted the Eagles, the Dockers, like to see if they had any cases of people completely tearing these muscles off the bone in, in the adductor. And they couldn't find any. Mm. Um, and so basically in the end, the decision was made that, that the surgery would probably prolong any healing to get back. Um, more so because I think they said, the surgeon said the brevis muscle is, it's just like muscle origin. Like it's on the bone there and you've got to stitch it all back in. Mm. He goes, the, the longest goes to a tendon and he could sort of uncoil it and nail it 
back onto the bone, like that's layman's terms. Um, but they said, we'll just let it heal, you know, let the scar tissue pull it all in. Um, <clears throat> that was, I think, April-ish. I didn't... 2008. Didn't, April in 2008. So, yeah. and I, I didn't jog in a straight line until January in 2009. Wow. And so, decision was made sort of around... I think sort of middle of June ish <clears throat> that, that I was out. Um, they gave me some time, said, here, I was, I wasn't, I wasn't doing anything. I couldn't really do anything. I think in, in my mind, I knew it was bad purely from that, the guy's description when mm. I had the pictures taken. Um, but I was hanging on to some sort of hope that maybe it wasn't as bad. And the surgeon had a look at goes, oh, I think you're right. But, I even think in their own minds, they knew it was bad mm. and that it was going to be over. And then they made the decision and Barry and I worked with Neil McLean leading in that, in that period, the psychologist about, about dealing with the setback and um, because it happened a little bit earlier and as the team was sort of coming together and final selections were named and that, um, I sort of just started to distance myself from the program. I wasn't going in every day and that, and that was purely, um, Barry's way of saying you don't have to come in and mm. it was it was and like I, I look back at it now and I go yeah it was disappointing um that I didn't get to go um and by the time the Olympics come around I was over the bitterness you know I was over that 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 distraught oh my god I'm not going to get a chance to go because at the time my 2007 was was as good as I could have played you know I was I was I was in a position where I could really go away to an Olympic games and really have an, an event that goes, Oh my God, I think I'm in a position to do extremely well individually mm. um, performance wise. And I just never got that chance mm. um, because the 2007 I was, I was playing, was playing right midfield. I was scoring a lot of goals from that position. I was, I was doing things that were adding a lot of value, I think to the group at the time. Um, and disappointingly, I was actually, I used to play AHL for Queensland. I used to play at the front. Mm. Um, I started as a striker, even in the national team, played 20 or maybe 30 matches as a striker and then got moved to a midfielder. Um, but when I used to go back and play for Queensland, especially the, the mid-2000 years, sort of towards the end, I played sort of up the front um, where I could just have a bit more freedom and try and score a few goals. And into 2008, I was actually going to play striker in the Olympic year and I was, cause I, I was doing so well there and um, for Queensland and Barry had made the choice. He goes, we're going to play up the front. I said, this is fun. Um, but then, yeah, the injury came and I had a lot of time to think about it post, you know, the, the injury about whether I wanted to continue. And like, I was never a player, Tom, that played 24 seven. Mm. 12 months a year like if I come out if I had a break I'd put my sticks as far away as I could without seeing them that was the type of guy I was and there's lots of people like that there are lots of people that love to play all the time mm. and so I was also in a pretty privileged position I think because of the fact that I've been to Olympic Games and won that that I yes I would have loved the opportunity to go back and yeah we're going to win it again we're going to we're going to go back to back because that's difficult to do in any sport um but I had a lot of time to think and I made the decision to retire in 2008. I was 27. And at the time it felt old. Mm. Then, I, then I watched Jamie at the 2016 <laughs> Olympics 
could probably still go to the Olympics now, little <laughs> bugger. Um, um, and I, and but but over the years, watching like my closest mates in Rob Hammond and Liam DeYoung and, and those guys go to London, go to 2014, like that could have been me. Mm. Like I could have been, I could have been in that, in that group still, um, pending injuries and mm. form and whatnot. Um, mm. And one of the biggest compliments that I've ever been paid post my retirement and one of the most hardest decisions I ever had to make was telling Rick Charlesworth that I didn't want to come back and play. Mm. So I had some I had some meetings with him at the end of 2009. I played the club season in 2009 in Perth. And I used to be able to maybe train once a week and play the weekend match. And by the end of the season, it was I was struggling to be able to play, to train because the, the pain on that bone was was pretty bad. Mm. And so I'd just play the game. And people used to say, oh, you move around so well. I said, yeah, I can still move around. It's just the, the aftermath is not nice. Mm. I, don't, I don't like the feeling. But we went through, I played for Westside Wolves in Perth. We made it all the way through the grand final. We had a great year and we, we just didn't get over the line against YM. Uh, CC, they, they beat us in the final, but we had a great year. I hit a, had a bucket load of goals. I think it's 46 goals or something um, in a club year, including the finals. So I had, a, I had a really fun season playing that. And in those, towards the end of that year and into the summer of 2009, I had some conversations with Rick where he said, you should come back and play come back and play in the national team. And I was like, oh, I don't really want to. And he goes, oh, you're tired a long time. And he, as Rick tends to be able to do, he says all the right things. Um, and I remember we had a couple of, couple of conversations and I would go to these conversations thinking to myself, right, I'm not going to let him bully me into a decision. I'm going to say, thanks, I'm not going to do it. And I'd always end in the car going like I didn't get anywhere because he'd go, oh, you've got to ask yourself the hard questions. And, and I got to a point where I was very, um, and, you know, up and down about whether I should do it. And I even got to the point where I went and had a medical, mm. had a medical at the ground. They did a full, like a physio screening. I went mm. and chatted with the strength and conditioning guy. I think it was Dave Lassini at the time. Um, had a chat with him about what a program would look like to rehab this properly and get myself back into it to, with an eye to potentially come back into the program and, and give myself a chance. In the end, I just said no. Um, and that was one of the hardest things to do. Like arguably our greatest ever coach and one of our greatest ever players and one of the greatest ever sporting minds in the country. The biggest compliment I think I've ever been paid was that he was a fan of the way I played, mm. you know, and he wanted me to play in his group mm. and I had to say no to him. So mm. as good as that compliment was, that was a really tough thing to do. We mm. had a really good relationship, Rick and I, and um, that, that was a hard, that was a hard no, you know, um, but I did it and I moved on. And, and in hindsight, with what happens, what happened after that when I have kids and things like that, it was probably for the best. Um, yep. it's, everything's easy in hindsight and we'll probably yep. get to that now. But it, it, it was probably the right choice to make. Yep. And, and they didn't need me. You know, yeah. they, they, they had some great success. And it was great to sit back and watch them do what they did in that sort of 2010 to sort of 2014 period where they were, they were, they were doing some pretty good things for hockey, like changing the game, changing the way it was played, mm. maybe not getting some results that they probably deserved, but boy, oh boy, they were fun to watch. Mm. Mm. I have to say, and not to not to salt a wound or anything, but Rick's style definitely, you would have complimented Rick's, Rick's game yeah. immensely. I can imagine that high octane, intense, full press, just for... Mm for people like you. I want to talk about the leading into Beijing in 2008. Um, you said in, in, uh, in our Rio prep, I remember before selections came out, 
you're in an interesting position where you were still a senior player in the team, but you knew you weren't going to the Olympics. Um, how is that? How did you still contribute to the team prior to 2008? Because we know that selections around Olympics are difficult um, and it's a, it's a deeply personal thing for a lot of people, but were you able yeah. to con- still contribute to the team around that time? Um, so I chose, I chose to align myself with the guys that didn't make it. Mm. So I remember selection day and the people, the disappointment of, of, and anyone that goes through a selection period where it's the, the pinnacle of your sport, whether it's, doesn't matter what the sport is, but when you're hanging on the notification of whether you're in or out, it's a real gut churner. You know, you can, you're putting yourself out on a wire and at any given moment you can just fall off, you know, mm. you, you, but you put yourself in that position because you want to do it, but knowing full well that at any moment that wire can be just taken from underneath you. And so you've got to be strong enough to put yourself out there, but understand that sometimes that it won't fall the way you want it to. And I remember, I remember being around the disappointment of a non-selection in 2004. Um, Liam DeYoung, who was arguably my, well, easily my best mate, growing up through the hockey period and still is today. We lived together, me, Rob Hammond and, and Liam lived together from 2001 through to, to 2004, I think it was, after the Olympics. And in the 2004 selections, Liam didn't, wasn't selected. Mm. And, and like I was selected, Rob was selected, Liam wasn't. And we were all in our home bases at that time, but we had to come back together at some point. And that was a really difficult time because you only want the best for your mates and you, you want the best for yourself. But at the same time, you have to live through the fact that like someone like your closest mate can miss out. And like in the end, like through unfortunate circumstances, Paul Godoyne was the captain of our team, um, had a huge influence on me when I first come into the Kookaburras group. I was rimming with him quite a fair bit. He was a 96 and 2000 Olympian and was going to lead the team in 2004. Unfortunately, got injured um, and, he, and he had to withdraw and Liam ended up going. Um, but just that, just that going through that non-selection period with someone that's close, I think it, I want it, because I knew what those guys would be feeling like, seeing it firsthand, I wanted to make sure I was just around them. And I would always, I was always going to be able to catch up with the guys who made it because I knew I wasn't in a position to be selected. And so I chose to go with those guys and be with them on the day that they found out and got together and sat around and had drinks and things like that with, with that group rather than the, the guys that were selected. Um, so I offered my support that way. And then um, knowing that when the Olympics were on, I was able to potentially sit and watch some of it with them if they were comfortable. But they, it was probably a lot more raw for them because they'd only just missed out and then have to go and watch. I was, I was able to sit with, with pretty comfortable ease watching them and then starting to barrack for them, which mm. is, which was a nice, it was a nice feeling mm. rather than sitting there sort of bitter and twisted and thinking, Oh, that should be me kind of thing. Mm. I was able to sit comfortably knowing that I'd, I'd supported the guys that missed out and now I'm going to support the guys that are, are there doing the, the whole program proud. Um, and unfortunately just didn't, didn't quite get the job done. Yeah, very cool. I'm going to fast forward a little bit to your coaching career because you did coach yep. when I first moved over to Perth. You're an assistant coach of the Kookaburras. I think yep. might have got your appointment around the same time that I did. I'm not sure, but I remember you were coaching 
WA or the Thundersticks that year in 2014. Yeah. Yeah. Um, talk yeah. to me a little bit about coaching and, and that journey and what you got out of that. Yeah, so I've sort of just sort of just fell into it. Um, probably when I was playing, I probably didn't see myself as a coach. Um, but when I went played 2009 in Wolves, Craig Davies, one of Australia's um, finest fullbacks back in the sort of in the 80s and, and that went to the 86 World Cup. He was coaching Wolves, and so I had a really good mentor there. He's a really, really great coach and a really, really good sort of mentor that I could have at a club level. Like we're pretty, pretty blessed to have him, really. And 2010, he, he didn't continue, and I sort of just went, "Well, I'll captain, I'm not captain. I'll coach and play." Um, they they said, "Would you coach and play?" I said, "Yeah, sure, I'll, I'll do it." Now that I know what that's like, it's a really difficult job. Like any, anyone that's done it will be able to agree with me that like being a captain, being a coach and a player at the same time, it's almost a poison chalice because <laughs> at, one, at one moment you're barking at, barking at 20-year-olds to run harder and chase harder, but physically I couldn't do it. So was that like I used to find myself quite conflicted. Like I'm asking him to do that, but I, I can't do that. Mm. So I'm out on the ground. Um, but it sort of made me, it really made me grow in that coaching sort of, um, mold that, okay, well, this is going to teach me a fair bit if I ever want to actually be a coach. Um, because this is, this is probably as difficult as it gets being a coach, just a coach. Yeah, that's hard. But I reckon playing and coaching, doing that first gave me a bit of a look on what, how hard it can be. Mm. Then when I stopped playing and was sort of just coaching, um, it become a lot easier. Um, because you can just watch the game. I think I always had an ability to read the game and problem solve live. Mm. Like, like there's a whole different types of coaches. Some coaches are really good technically. Other coaches earn their money because they can coach live. They can they can break down scenarios really quickly and um, make adjustments on the fly. And I think I was always able to do that to a degree. And then I sort of just progressed. I did some coaching for Wolves went away, did some assistant stuff for WA and then sort of just progressed through. And then in 2014, I took on the AHL team and we went all the way and we lost to Tasmania in a shootout actually, mm. um, which was a great final. It was really, really, really good theatre um, and great for Tasmania. I think it was that first, their first senior title and, and fully deserved. They, play, they played really well. Um, but And then from that moment, I was then invited to do a little bit of coaching um, in the senior program, just consulting I think I was at first and then they offered me a full-time position and at the time I was like I think I was young enough to to make the, the decision to to do it and sort of just said well if I if I don't walk through this door it may, it may not never open again so I mm. jumped at the chance and got an opportunity to join the, the senior program and and that come with its own challenges because I was I was, I was I had people that I played with still in that team you know that and that was that was the hesitation I think to begin with. I was like, well, I don't I don't think this is I don't think I can do this because Jamie's still there, Mark Knowles is still there. You know, um, like how how am I going to be able to approach this as a guys who are my mates away from the ground, but then we turn up to training and I'm telling them what to do and mm-hmm. and that. But the professional athletes that they are, they aren't they were able to put that aside. And but the other good thing was I got a good chance to to work with the next crop like you guys and and like people like Dylan Wallaceburn who comes from our region and, and things like that got an opportunity to see these guys um, and give them a hand in terms of trying to pl- make their way 
in a, in the sport that I've I'd been at, and it was only a it was only a seven year time frame from when I retired to when I was coaching. So in in the program, so it was a pretty quick return, um, and so yeah, it was it, it was challenging, but it was it was rewarding in a, in a way because I got the opportunity and, and got to learn from Graham Reed and, and Paul Godoy and other coaches along the way about aspects of what it's like on the other side of the fence. And to begin with, that was really difficult because I would, I would emotionally be in the, in the game competitively in my mind as a player. I found it very difficult to not invest myself emotionally as if I'm out there playing with a stick in my hand, um, becoming quite emotional, you know, with, with what was happening. And then over time being able to teach myself, okay, you can't be like that. You have to, you have to be a little bit more. You're just coaching and and be a little bit calmer and a little bit more, I guess, you know, normal. Mm. I definitely remember you are uh, having a great impact, and a lot of the stuff that you told me when I first moved over, I share with um, whoever I happen to come into contact with, especially around pushing out and striker skills and mm. and that sort of thing. And I think we definitely that kind of young group that came through at the same time as you as a coach definitely benefited a lot from from having you there and not being so removed oh. from the game to forget all the stuff that you used to do you know like that i think yeah. it's a massive difference um, and, you, and you can see you can see, it's been good to see the progression of guys that have came in around the same time who have now like really established themselves as as key members of of that group that were that hopefully who knows leading into the olympics or not um but uh, really adding value to that to that team and the way that you're playing under Batchy. It's, it's really good. We'll see. I'm going to move past coaching because you stepped away um, at the end of 2016 um, yep. and moved back to to Tweed because you're yep. a big family man and, and family life for you is a little different to what it might be for a lot of families out there. Can you talk to me about what it's like to be a dad and, um, and being a father to two beautiful kids? Um, so, yeah, anyone that's out there listening would, would understand that, like, Parenting will change your life. Um, most of the time, they bring you joy. Other times, they can be real shits. But um, <laughs> so, in 2011, uh, we had our first child, um, and her name's Stella. And <clears throat> it's everyone's, I guess, it's every pe- pending parent's biggest fear is that there's there's something wrong with your child. Yeah, unfortunately for us. Um, Ah, uh, that came true. Not not to the point where we we lost our child, but uh, Stella Stella was born with a syndrome, and it's a rare one, and it's called Pentosomy X. And basically, what that means is is that you and I are XY. Our genetic profile is XY male. Female is XX. Um, Stella is XXXXX, <clears throat> and so you can imagine being told something like that. Um, It's pretty distressing. And initially we knew that there was something wrong and it was, it was in the third trimester. Um, She was measuring a little smaller and our obstetrician just, he was a bit unsure. And we went and saw um, a professor who sort of heads up some, the obstetricians in Perth, I think, um, and she was pretty happy. And then in the end, they were arming and ahhing and they ended up doing an, em- an amnio, which is the, the needle into the, into the um, belly and they draw some fluid out. Um, and at the time, the risks involved with that was because Stella was 
36 or five-ish weeks at the time that if she went into labor, then Lisa went into labor, they would just deliver the baby. Mm. Like, like uh, it's not like we're doing an amnio at like 26 weeks where the baby's only just viable or something. Um, and so they, they send the fluid off for testing and it come back, come back. There was something on the X line, but it wasn't conclusive because it wasn't, they couldn't get a full profile until they got blood. So from that moment on, we were just on watch pretty much being monitored. And then um, one day Lisa went in for a heart trace um, and the Stella's heart rate dipped really low. Obstetrician, the, the midwife called obstetrician. He come over and he goes, I've been looking for an excuse to, to take your baby out. I'm going to do it right now. So we'll prep you. And at the time, me being me, because I'm, I try and keep things pretty lighthearted. Like I'm sure Lisa would have been feeling pretty horrible, but at the time, so what? I quickly got into my scrubs and I was <laughs> sort of par- sort of par- parading around the room. Lisa's mum was there. So I was like, get a photo of me in my scrubs and things like that. I'm trying to keep the mood a bit light. But the thing was, I was in thongs because I was just going in for a routine trace. So I was only in thongs and bodies and stuff. Um, and I had to go into theatre. So I had to wear, I had to borrow some surgeon's big gumboots, big white gumboots. So they gave me these socks and put these gumboots on. Um, anyway, they got, they got her out. The cord was around the neck. And so he said, that's the reason for the trace. We had to get her out. But in that time, we then took her in. They took some blood and carrier typed it. And they sent it off, had it profiled, and it come back, this Pentasomy X. Um, and at the time, you go, okay, well, what does that mean? Like, we, she's got a disability, but what is it? And then when you get told the astronomical number of girls worldwide that have ever had this can completely knock you for six. Mm. So Stella is one of less than a hundred females in Western medical literature to ever have this syndrome. Wow. And so you then look at this little girl and you think how unfair, Um, how, how unfair that someone's livelihood can be slightly taken away from them even before they take their first breath. And you feel guilty, you know, you feel, you feel guilty, you feel angry, you feel upset, you feel a whole range of things. And that, that, the first few months, like we just lived in a hole. You, you just want to go try and go about your normal life. And she was so tiny. That was the other thing. She was like two kilos when she came out. Like, what's that? Four pound five or something. Like she could fit, like she could fit from the edge of my wrist to before my elbow. Like you imagine holding something so small, like it, it, it was incredible. And I, it's even now when I look at my, my sister just had a baby um, the other week, four and a half kilos, like that's nine pounds something. But then I look at her and I go, oh, she, they look so tiny as babies. And then I go, oh my God, that's, that's twice the size, more than, than what Stella was born. And so you, it was incredible. And then we made a decision after a while. I just said, I said, like, we can't keep living like this and end up telling family, close friends. And it was like a big, as you would expect, it was a big relief because everyone come to support and people were upset for you and, and whatnot. And, um, but holy moly, she's a beauty. Mm. 
<laughs> you know, and anyone that's out there that's listening to this that's met my daughter will, will understand that she's, she certainly is one of a kind because she has, has this way of, you know, drawing you in with her personality and, and the way that she can, you know, almost manipulate you to, to march to her beat. No, she certainly, <laughs> she, well, she certainly got me marching to the beat, that's for sure. But that, that initial fear and anyone that, like I said, is, who has been a pending parent waiting it is the one thing that may keep you awake at night is that is something wrong with my child. And more often than not that, that it comes out and it's, everything's okay. The difficult part for us with Stella is that because it is so rare, it's very difficult to get a gauge on where she'll be in a year, five years, 10 years. What? Because you don't really have any timelines to follow. Mm. Anyone that, anyone that has a child with down syndrome, it is a common syndrome. And so you can pretty much draw a, make up a pretty like a pretty accurate timeline about the things that they can and can't do because it is, it is, unfortunately it's quite common that um, people have children with down syndrome, but there's enough information out there that allow you to um, allow you to plan what their life looks like. Whereas for Stella, it's almost like you just let her steer. And if she goes way off course, then you just straighten her up and we're not overbearing parents. We've got some, incredible service providers who support us. Um, she, she can be doing three therapies a week as well as going to school, which she would go every day of the year. If you let her, she absolutely loves it. <clears throat> and we've, we're really blessed. We're really blessed with a beautiful school, just not far from our house here that they really protect her, but also they really try and give her independence. You know, they, they, they give her some, yeah, they treat her to the way that she should be treated, but also they don't, they don't let her just, know roll out the red carpet every day she's got to work hard for what she does and um and what the future holds for her in terms of schooling and that we don't know that there may be a very strong chance that once she gets through primary school that she can't go into a secondary senior school because she just won't have the, the skills to be able to do that um but i find myself very i find myself very conflicted in thinking about the and some people have asked me this question about um whether or not if I could go back and if I could give up everything that I have achieved, if it meant that Stella could have the same opportunities, would I just give it up? And straight away I go, yes, you know, just take it away, take it all away. That and if I could bring my mother back, those two things, just take it away. Like I don't care. Like in the end it is hockey is a game. Life is real. And my mother's gone and Stella's life is somewhat, you know, it's, it's been robbed from her, her livelihood, the way that it should be allowed to be lived. But then I also sit on the other side of the fence and go, nobody has taught me more about myself potentially and how you should look at life outside of your own self more than she has. Not many people can sit probably confidently and say the most incredible person they've ever met is a nine and a half year old girl. Mm. People like us. So who's the most important, incredible person you've met? Oh, you know, Barack Obama. Or, <laughs> you, know, you know, people that meet amazing people around the world in their own right. Yeah. I don't know why I said him. Um, but like in my eyes, I go the, the two most incredible people that 
that I've met in my life are my 92 year old grandfather and my nine and a half year old daughter mm. because of what they've taught me about, mm. about how to live life. Like, yeah, I whinge at things still today, but holy moly, I don't whinge at mu- as much as I used to because <laughs> like wh- how selfish of me to, to worry and whinge about things that like I shouldn't be whinging about. Like if I three putt, <laughs> which I do a lot. <clears throat> um, but yeah. And, the, and then the, the other beautiful thing is that, we then went through the, we went through having another child. Um, we lost it in the middle of having Stella and Isla. Um, and that was traumatic at the, at the time because we were very anxious about having another child as you would be, you know, mm. what happens if it happens again. We had full carrier types done, mm. um, genetic profiling done. Um, and then you, the chances you just go, well, we'll try. And then we lost it, um, had it tested. And there was, there was a syndrome there, um, but like a lot of miscarriages are, there's something, there's, a, there's something there that's not compatible with, mm. with a living human. And so that's why a lot of people do miscarriage, um, mm. I think. And then, then fortunately enough, um, we, we had Isla, who is an absolute maniac. <laughs> <laughs> and she, and she, has been, she has been sent to, um, she has been sent down deliberately, I think, to... <laughs> just to just to really test me because holy moly i've never known i've never i've never known someone that can get into a screaming contest so often with a three and a half year old child <laughs> um because she's yeah very strong willed can dig her heels in um but she's um it's already it's good to see them together isla and stella um <clears throat> and i also have this conversation a fair bit is that i'm hopeful that it gets to the day that if I ever have to sit Isla down and say, okay, we're going to talk about Stella. When I can mm. reason with Isla, I want to get to the, I want to leave it long enough to the point where I can sit down and say, or we can sit down as a family and say, now, you know, we're just going to talk to you about Stella because she's got this disability and she's a bit different and needs a bit of help. I wanted, I want Isla to go, no shit. <laughs> like, duh. like I know, you know, I, I, I would like her to be able to just work it out for herself. And she's already taking the lead. I watch them play. And Stella's personality being having a disability, she plays a lot younger. Her personality is a lot younger. And so when they play around the house, they Stella's very into doing what Isla's doing. And so Isla's like, come on, Stella. And so away she goes. She just she just follows her away. And, um, yeah, it's 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 been good that she's got that sort of, she'll have that rock with her mm. now forever, I think. And looking at the age catchments, they'll get two years together at primary school together, which will also be nice. They'll go to the mm. same school and <clears throat> she'll get that chance. But yeah, I look at, I look at my life now and go, kids are a blessing, you know, it, it's the, it's the most rewarding thing that can happen in your life. And I'm, I sit, yes, upset at times about Stella and about, unfortunately the cards that she's been dealt and has to try and make her hand out of. <clears throat> but I always think to myself, I take her to appointments at Queensland children's hospital or somewhere and I walk in there and I'm fortunate enough and I could walk in there and walk out of there on the same day. There are kids mm. that walk into those hospitals that never come out. You know, there are, there are kids that just go in there and they stay there. Mm. And so like, I'm lucky in that sense I've got friends that struggle to have children. And so that I look at Stella and go, yeah, she's got some challenges ahead of her, but holy moly, what, what a blessing. Like, like I've got this, I've got this incredible girl that will teach us and everyone around her 
about life for the rest of your life. Um, and so I get asked often by friends that may be not involved in hockey, like, is the Olympic gold medal the defining moment in my life? It's insignificant mm. when it comes to drawing that up alongside losing my mother at age 10 and then having this incredible child that is one of an absolute zillion, you know, like that, that is the defining moment in my life because losing mum changed me, changed the direction of my life. And then I had Stella and it makes the gold medal, you know, I never, I never shy away from the responsibilities and the significance of the achievement, but in terms of me and defining me as the person, like that's down the list, I think. Mm. We were speaking a little earlier off air about the the Steve Wall Foundation as well, and you had a pretty cool story yeah. to share about yeah. Steve and his foundation. So the guys who were involved in the two thousand and eight Beijing Olympics, um, they had Steve Wall a bit like the, like like John Eels in two thousand and four when you spoke to to Mick McCann and John Eels was our um, was our athlete sort of ambassador that attached himself to hockey and that that was a that was just a real <laughs> head spin as well. Like it, you'd walk into the stadium in Athens, ready to go and play a game. And John Eels is carting the water bottles in front of him. <laughs> you're thinking, you're looking at this guy, this colossus mountain of a man who in his own right is one of Australia's greatest um, sport, sportsmen. He's pulling your water bottles and he's mm. saying, Eggy, do you want water or Gatorade or a bit of both? <laughs> and, and I'm going, I don't know, just sign my jersey. <laughs> <laughs> like... Um, and and he's like John Eels and I'm, Mick probably touched the, his stories about him like capture who he is like he was just a fair dinkum Aussie bloke mm. remove all the stuff he was just this down to earth Aussie guy that would literally take the shirt off his back to hurt help someone <laughs> else out and and thankfully we were the ones that did it but in 2008 Steve War was coming on board and in 2007 as the program started I think we were, were we in Sydney or somewhere. I can't remember where we were, but we went to an Olympic, Australian Olympic Committee day. Steve Waugh was there. Stephen Bradbury was there and told his story. And if anyone hasn't heard the full Stephen Bradbury story other than him falling across the line and winning that gold medal, you need to go and listen to his story because it is an incredible one. One of resilience, one of real, like, real life-threatening injuries and things mm. like that. And, if yeah, don't just think about that 10 seconds of him going across the line because the story that's behind that it'll re it'll really like touch you. So if you, anyone that hasn't listened to that story, go and find it. It's really, it's a really good one. But Steve Waugh, he was going to be the ambassador with the hockey. And so we got to meet him and he had the red rag from the pocket and <laughs> had the baggy green and he was passing around telling his stories and <clears throat> everyone loves Steve Waugh growing up. Like who didn't, if you didn't like Steve Waugh, you're not Australian. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's my, that's my opinion. Anyway, he, he was going to, and I didn't get to go. And so my time with Steve Waugh was pretty much just on that day. I didn't get, I didn't get a chance to go away. Um, but they, for those that don't know, he has a foundation called the Steve Waugh Foundation. And it's run by him and his wife, Lynette, and a big family and team behind them that support kids with rare disease and disability. And because of Stella's rare disability, Pentosomia X at the time was sometimes difficult to get support because of the rareness of the 
disability. Like they needed more critical information. And the Steve Wall Foundation is there for people to get support from these kids who have really rare genetic diseases or, or, or syndromes. Some of them one of a kind types, like where they can't get a diagnosis or they can't get support. So they've got this foundation set up where they provide the opportunity to support through funding to better these children's lives. And it's Lynette's, Steve War. we applied for a grant and we got this grant um, for Stella for speech therapy and some assistive technology and iPads and things like that. And then we got invited to a thing that they do every year called Rare Stars Day. So they invite a bunch of families from around Australia and they go and meet in Sydney and they put you up for accommodation, fly down there. And they go to this Rare Stars Day where they set up these big day purely for the kids and then the families. And um, we got invited and you go down there and it's, it's an incredible day. You hear, you hear some stories. And again, it's one of those moments that I walk into and I look at some of the other children and I go, holy moly, like, we're, we're so lucky with Stella because some of these kids have diseases or genetic conditions that when they were a five-year-old, they were completely normal and then something started to slightly change and then by the age of 15, they're gone. Mm. And you, hear, you listen to these parents tell the stories and you can't help but just be bawling in front of them. Mm. And they're, they're saying it just purely just to tell you the story. And you just sit there and this foundation is set up for... Um, for supporting these kids. So we went down there and he, you, you meet him and you get some photos and, I, and as the day goes on, he just walks around. I got an opportunity to go and sort of chat with him. And I just told him, I said, Oh, you, you wouldn't remember me, but you would remember the Beijing Olympics. You were attached to the hockey team. And he said, Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I said, I was in that squad, but I got injured and I didn't get a chance to be selected. And he goes, Oh, it's fantastic. I said, it's just incredible that I can stand here sort of however long, like, 10 years after that happened that I'm now in a position with something else that's happened in my life that we've been reconnected in this way. And we sat there and chewed the fat for a bit and spoke, he spoke about his time at the, at the Olympics and how much he enjoyed it and things like that. And yeah, it was, it's good to see, it was good to see him in that environment because it's not the Steve war cricketer. It's Steve war. The guy that is, um, is there for other people in these families and by his own admission, he stands up there and it's his wife's, it's his wife's baby. He, she, she's the one that started it, wanted it. She's very shy. And Steve Wall was able to, through his profile, like pitch it, I think, and get the support. But he always makes note that when he talks that it's his, it's his wife's baby and she's the one that deserves all the credit and he's, he's just the face. But it was incredible. It was great to see him in that setting because he gets all these special guests. He had a, the original, original yellow wiggle is it greg mm, i think so yeah he was there <laughs> doing all the old wiggle tunes and like while whilst they're he's doing the songs and the kids are all doing the moves he's just sitting on the side of the stage and these kids are just jumping all over him like on his lap <laughs> and he's just sitting there hugging them like it's incredible it's amazing to see um but you know, i look i look again and go how lucky are we to have one that support but two from from an, a person that was actually just for a brief period was, um, was in my, um, in my life, um, as that ambassador. And yeah, it's, yes, it's, it's a really good, um, it's a really good foundation. And if I think you can donate, if you, and if you don't know it, just look it up on the, look it up, Steve Wall foundation, um, um, and have a bit of a read about it because I think Stella will have some pictures on there and, 
and things like that from the rare stars day. We, we, we sometimes see a, as the, their Instagram posts that they do every now and again about something. And sure enough, it's, it's stellar. So it makes mm. you pretty proud. Mm. It is a wonderful foundation. I know a great mate of yours, Mark Knowles was just on the, um, <clears throat> the captain's right, I believe, which is a, a yeah. fundraising event for the Steve Wall foundation. And yeah, so they, they do a ride. It's like, I can't remember like 800, 900 Ks or something. Like, they do some, some pretty big riding. Um, and it's all to raise money and awareness for Seawall Foundation and, and children with these rare genetic um, conditions. Um, and Nolsey being Nolsey's fit bugger. Like, <laughs> uh, if I if I tried to try to put my hand up with that, I'd probably do one training session. And yeah, probably not, <laughs> probably not, probably probably not my kettle of fish. Um, but yeah, it's great, and and it gets good work, good good wide exposure. It's on sunrise; they get behind it, and and they get some really, really good people like from all aspects of life and sport to just jump on board and, and, and go and grit it out. And some of the, some of the dads from kids are out there doing it mm. for them. Like they're riding these bikes and are battling away, gritting their teeth and no doubt dealing with saddle sores and what else happens to, to cyclists. I don't know what else they, <laughs> they get, um, but they're, they're dealing with it just purely for their, for their own children. Yeah, it's mm. beautiful. Mm. I remember I, um, I was listening to a, a podcast with Kurt Fernley um, and he was talking about he, he grew up way out west and it was a small country town and he really felt that the, the community banded around him and I'm sure in that community they really felt like he was each of their son, you know, like everyone, everyone loved him and um, he, was, he was so overwhelmingly loved and I remember I'll have lifelong memories of Stella was always on someone's hip around training yeah, yeah, yeah. she was either yeah, on the pitch or she was on matt goad's hip or she was on your hip yeah. or she was on jeremy haywards and she was really part of the team frankly no. like she was everywhere and, and she's no she's no different now she's she comes to coaching with me in the afternoons i pick her up from school and she wants to go and she walks up there and she's got all she's got all the like the kids that she knows and she goes up to them and holds her hands and wants to warm up with them and stuff like that and mm. it's one of those places even when we're in perth but and, and now that we're back here that it's a bit like when I send her to school that when she's at hockey, it's one of the rare places that I don't have to worry about her because <laughs> everyone knows her. Mm. Everyone knows her here now. She, she goes around and she even, even leading into grand final day here, like my club is green, black. They're the colors green and black. And she would want to go and sit and wear the colors of the other teams. <laughs> so on grand on grand final day, we had her dressed in this br- bright green stuff, so you could see her. And she's over mm. in the Casarina group, and they're they're like this aquarelly blue colour, <laughs> and so you could just see her. She's standing out, and she just wants to be there. And then she's with Moolumbah, getting Moolumbah face paint on, and it reminded me of the story. I look at her, and I, and it must be something in in their thinking is that I remember hearing a really nice story. Wayne Bennett's son, who I think has a disability, who's an adult, I think now. He has a jersey of every other team and whenever his team that he's coaching, whether it would have been the Broncos or now it's South, whenever South are playing, he wears the jersey of the team they're playing. <laughs> so he's got 15 or fifteen other jerseys. And so if they're playing, if they're playing Manly, he's got the Manly jersey on <laughs> just, just, to, just to make a, a point. That's um, hilarious. And so I look, I look at Stella and she, she certainly does the same. She's, she, she had a Casarina jumper and she had, Oh, she's, yeah, she's been given actual other team apparel to wear and she wears it proudly. And I look at her and go, Oh my God, if pop pops, saw you wearing this stuff or, <laughs> or that you, you, you'd be disowned. 
That's hilarious. I did. I did read the other day though that she um uh, she was doing some reading of of some of her handwriting stuff, and she said, "My dad likes to play golf. My sister either yep. likes to play hockey, and then she said that she likes to play netball." Um, yeah, I'm not sure about that. No, and so Stella is the novelty of something that someone else is doing sort of hangs in the forefront of her thinking. Mm. So they may have been doing it at school. Some, say her friends are probably playing netball, so she plays netball. And so mm. if you ask her, because that's what she's thinking, oh, do you, what do you play? She goes, netball. You know, right? <laughs> She'll say netball. And I go, really? And then people go, she play netball? I said, she don't play netball. Um, and, and she loves, she does love hockey. Like she mm. loves, she loves the, she loves holding the stick and running around and, and having a hit. Um, she played, not last year, year before, she played um, some Mickey Modified here and, had all the gear and the mouth guard and the shinies and stick and stuff like that and then ran around and she got a couple of hits, but I think it's just mm. the novelty of, of running around with a, with the teammates. Um, but then she had the knee injury last year. Um, and then this year with the COVID sort of season, we sort of just didn't push her back into it, but we might try and get her back in again um, next year and see how she goes. But yeah, she, she doesn't play netball, but she likes to tell people she plays other sports. She definitely got the golf one right about me. And she, Isla, I'm not sure. Isla will be pretty decent. She's pretty, she's pretty fast and pretty athletic um, for a three and a half year old. Um, and so I wouldn't be surprised if she's, she's pretty handy. Mm. Well, they both come from good stock. I mean, your wife, Lisa, also had a few games for Australia. Yeah. So that was, a, that was an interesting time. And it's a really nice story that, I think back to that time with everything that went on with Stella 2011, we had a, and then Adam Commons gave her an opportunity if she wanted to, to try and um, <clears throat> try and have a crack and see how she went in, in sort of like a national camp scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, she was always a, she was always a really good player through AHL year. She won a bunch of titles WA when we were living over there and, and in my own personal opinion and, and other people's opinions as well, that she was probably overlooked um, a few times and she probably could have been a, a 100, 200 game player. Who knows? Because she, she's very good. Um, but the opportunity come just at the wrong time. And with everything that went on with Stella and a lot of people don't know this is that everything that went on with Stella and the, tra- and the distress around that and that and dealing with the, the what, what does the future look like for her and, and everything and of course, having it, she had a cesarean birth, but she made a debut for Australia five months after giving birth. Stella. Wow. I mean, that, that's an incredible story. I know there's other people who've done similar things, but I look at everything that was lapped on us with Stella, and and the the feeling of oh my god, like what, what does this mean? To then want to try and get fit, to then get over the surgery, and then get get herself back into it, and then five months later, actually throw on a bodysuit for Australia and, and play far out. That's, that's a pretty incredible, that's a pretty incredible story. That um, is. So, and so, yeah, she does come from good, she does come from good, good stock, Isla. So, and she's certainly built like it. If you look at her now, if she's just running around in a pair of undies or that, she's got quads and she's got calves already. And I look <laughs> at her and go, Oh, I don't know what you're going to look like when you're 13, because when you're looking at you now, you, um, you're like a little gymnast. <laughs> <laughs> so, so she um she could be she could be anything I don't know I might if she wants to play hockey she will, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't push her into it we'll probably dare say we'll be around the sport and if she wants mm. to pick the stick up naturally she will and like most of us did out of a family but um 
if she chose to play something else, you know, good luck to her. <laughs> oh, I won't say I won't say no. Get her into golf. She can come out with me. We're going to leave it there. But before I um, finish my episodes, I'll finish with three questions. Um, yep. First one, you alluded to this before, but the best player you've ever played against and, and why? Um, best player I've ever played against. If you don't mind, I'll just elaborate on this kind of thing because I get asked these questions a lot. Mm. Turn to Noy was the best player I ever played against yep. internationally, I think, for the reasons I've already mentioned. If I think about... Domestically, let's think about domestically. Like, so in the AHL competition, I think Bevan George was the best mm. player I played against. He, and when you look at the way he played for Australia, you can see why he was he's just an incredible player. If I think about a club level and what people can do on a club level, and people don't think about this a lot. I was in Perth for you know, 17 years. And so I saw a lot of national players come through Perth. And some of them have abilities just to play, yeah, okay, they play normally, but others have an ability to really influence that level of hockey because of how good they are. Mm. And I think in 17 years of hockey, I never saw a player who could influence the club competition as much as I saw that Simon Orchard could do. Wow. So when he played club hockey, his sheer running capacity when he was at the top of his game was almost impossible to go with. And when I watched him play the club level, you'd, you, sometimes the, the game would be in the balance and then he would just take over. Like, and, and that's saying a lot. Well, I saw a lot of good players come through the club comp, both playing and coaching. But to influence the competition at a level, he was just incredible at being able to say, I'm an international player and you're not, and this is why. Because mm. some international players just sort of, they, they might just cruise through and have their input in that. And yes, they do really well and they, they're international players, but not, I, I don't think I, I could picture anyone else doing it at the level he did. Mm. What, what was it about him? One, he, he, his running capacity was incredible. So he'd run and run and run and run and run, but he could do it fast. Mm. And so his movements, you, you, you've played with him and you've seen him for a long time. He, his ability to just run past people. I think he's so fast, but also so fit. And so boom, boom, boom. And you go, oh, he's untouchable, this guy. <laughs> so yeah, and at the club level, that's where it stands out. You see the ones that stand out. Sometimes you can go to a club comp and take a mate and go pick the Australian player. And they go, I can't pick one mm. because the, other, the Aussie player just might be cruising. If mm. you dragged your mate along and said, pick the one, they'd go, oh, it's that guy <laughs> with a torch. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, that might allude a little bit to my next question, which is the best player you've ever played with. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set a premise around this because I've heard a lot of good sporting podcasts about um, great leaders. Um, and a few guys speak about Richie McCaw, um, famous All Black, who when times were getting tough, they, they got a lot of confidence out of the fact that he was playing on their team. And whenever it was hard, they'd look at him and he seemed to be perfectly... Um, composed and they knew everything was going to be okay. Yeah. So you can answer in that respect as well. It could be the best player yeah. technically or best player, favourite player to have on your team. Well, I think the best player I played with, I think, I think it would be, this is, this is unfair really because there's been so many. Mm. I think it would be Michael Brennan because I, one, I idolised him, but two, he was an incredible hockey player. You know, mm. he really was. You could, I could also sit here and say it's Jamie Dwyer because he was another one that used to used to just go, well, he's just untouchable. Mm. Um, but if you look at the whole aspects and the people that had 
the ability to bring teams together. Me growing up, so I'm looking up at these players. So I'm always going to look to someone that's potentially a bit older. Like coming through the Queensland system, we're around each other a lot. And, you know, I look to players that could deliver in the moments and Troy Elder was probably that guy. Hmm. I, I looked at the way he played and you still, you, he's still running around in the Brisbane comp these days and um, can do the same things he could do. Um, he's an incredible ball handler, but I think about lots of AHL games taking the moment by the sort of by the bull by the horns and he would, in the moment, if we needed him to flick a goal, he would flick it. Or hmm. if we needed that, we needed someone to remain calm, it was him. Um, hmm. And if anyone that's seen the, the footage of the goal we score in 2004 against India with like 30 seconds to go on the clock to win the game, Michael Brennan knocks it in. Michael, Mick McCann passes it across, but in the middle of the field under extreme pressure, Troy Elder just does this unbelievable elimination so quick, like this big V drag that most players I don't think would be able to do in that context of the, of the scenario. Mm. So I played with him for show and then played with him for Queensland a lot. And he was probably the one that had that leadership, you know, mm. so, um, and would also hold people to account as well um, because he, he loved playing for Queensland and loved winning. Great answer. Last question. What's your favorite part of fatherhood? Um, oh, favorite part of fatherhood. <clears throat> probably that I made them <laughs> I reckon I, I can look in and stand I can sit back and look from a distance proudly that they're mine mm. um, and that um, anything that maybe anything that they do is I'm part of that mm. um, you can say milestones and things like that the, 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 the best part of fatherhood but yeah they bring you they do bring you a lot of joy. Yeah. Like all parents, they, you scream at your kids. Anyone that doesn't say they never scream with their kids lying um, because they can be naughty. But you know, my, I sit proudly as fatherhood to say, you know, that they're, they're part of me, those two. And I've brought them into the world and they're at opposite ends of the scale in terms of the directions that they're heading in life. But at the same time, like I'll be here with them um, mm. every, every step of the way. And, yeah, that, that's probably it. Probably, yeah, it's, it's probably just a pride thing. I don't reckon a, that's a difficult question to answer because I, I don't reckon there would be too many parents that don't say that they're just overwhelmed with pride when they look at their kids. Mm. You know, I think I think that's what it is, and that proudness comes from the fact that they're yours. I think you, pr- you, you know, I look at them and go, "Holy moly!" I'm when Stella brings a merit certificate home from school, like <laughs> like I, I'm almost wanting to burst into tears. Like I'm an emotional beast. I am. Um, as you've seen today, but that's just in a reflection of who I am. Mm. Um, and so you know, I'm proud. I'm even proud of Isla. Who, she wants to wear a different Cinderella fairy frozen something dress every day to daycare. <laughs> I'm still proud of her when she walks into there. It's, it's becoming a bit of a laugh with some of the parents who are always amazed. They're, oh, I wonder what Isla's wearing today. <laughs> so, so that, yeah. So they, they, they bring you a lot of laughs, you know, mm. um, even Stella, like she, she cracks me up. She, even even with all the struggles and that, she still has the ability to make me laugh just with all kinds of stuff. So, no, nah, it's probably Beautiful. a pride thing. Beautiful. We're going to leave it there. Thanks, Egg. That was a brilliant episode and I'm sure I got I got heaps out of it. It's, it's 
one of my favorites <clears throat> by far. You've got a beautiful story, uh, wonderful family, and, and you've done a lot. And it's very different to a lot of the others. So I'm gonna, I've got a lot out of that. And I'm sure the listeners will as well. Thanks. Uh, thanks, mate. I've enjoyed it. So hopefully hopefully those people out there get, get a bit of a rip. bit of something out of it. And yeah, if anything, they get a laugh. <laughs> That's it for another episode of The Help Side. Special thanks to my production team of David Moore and Tim Collier, plus countless others working behind the scenes to get this to you. You're the real MVPs. Again, if you're liking the show, please like, subscribe, you know the drill, and get in touch with us via our socials. We would love to hear from you. Anyway, that's all, folks. See you next week.